0: warning this podcast episode may contain explicit content including swearing discussion of sexual violence and rape and other adult content
1: welcome to crow club a shadow and bone and grisha verse podcast if you've been listening you know that what you can expect from this podcast is spoilers for everything no tv show no book no short story no novella is safe if you listen there will be spoilers. My name is JJ. I'm Kat. And I'm Anjali. And today's topic is Nina. We will be (laughs) covering Nina's arc in the Six of Crows duology only. There will be some spoilers for the King of Scars duology, but we won't primarily be discussing that. We had one podcast episode, one of our first ones about Nina and Matthias, and now we will talk more about Nina specifically. A note about pronouns as we get going. By the end of the King of Scars duology, it's pretty clear that Hannah is trans, and we learn that Hannah will spend the following decades in a body tailored to look like Fjorda's prince. So the series, unfortunately, ends without a clear name or pronouns for Hannah. And Nina's narration never knowingly refers to Hannah with a new name or pronouns. So given where the series ended, we will refer to Hannah with he, him pronouns and by the name Hannah.
0: Yeah, it's actually really interesting. I reread the final chapter between Nina and Hannah. It really almost felt deliberately like they never gender Hannah in any way in that scene.
1: Yeah, it's... I reread it trying to figure out the right thing to do. It's really striking. So name fun fact. I had to stretch her a little bit, but Nina (laughs) (laughs) means enclosure of fish in Babylonian (laughs) and fire in Quechua. Hmm.
2: Today's quote that we selected to encapsulate Nina She was tall and built like the figurehead of a ship, carved by a generous hand.
1: I love this quote so much. I referred to this, I don't know if I actually mentioned the quote I was referring to, but I remember in another podcast when I was saying how sometimes Bardugo can just come up with one sentence that sounds so simple but conveys so much. And the figurehead of a ship carved by a generous hand. Mm -hmm. Like, how evocative and how lovely. Even that analogy there, and I don't want to read too much into, like, Nina becoming a fisherman's wife at the end (laughs) and the figurehead thing. But, you know, it's just, I think there is, it's a beautifully done introduction to a character.
2: I think the quote is also interesting because at first blush, I just assumed that it kind of meant she was very curvy and had Mm -hmm. sort of like zaftig proportions, which I think is probably true and what it's meant to convey. But I think generous could also mean like like she was especially beautiful, which I also believe to be true about Nina.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that you bring that up because I think that Zoya and Jenya are maybe the only two characters who are repeatedly described as like beautiful.
1: The Darkling, hey!
0: Okay, so there's three characters that I think Lee Bardugo speaks of their beauty quite a bit, and it's Zoya, Jenya, and the Darkling. I don't really recall specific moments where Nina is thought of as beautiful, besides by Matthias, who clearly, you know, adores the ground that she walks on. But I also had that impression, Angeline, I think it's because she's just so charming
1: mm-hmm. and confident
0: that I associate that with someone who's like attractive.
1: I guess. I. I think it's because she feels good about herself. And, like, we see that a lot. We see that she feels good just about her body and about being in it. And we kind of translate that as beautiful.
0: Right. And it really works on other people, too. Like, obviously, Yarl Broom is convinced that she's very attractive. But there's many times where she flirts herself out of trouble. There. Yes. (laughs) It's like a, yeah, it's not. Like a a lot, Yeah. Yeah.
2: So when we first meet Nina, she is working at the House of the White Rose, one of the brothels in Ketterdam, but you know, one of the like really nice, luxurious ones. And she's not necessarily actually doing a lot of sex work. She is primarily using her heart render powers to do some mood lifting and also a bit of light tailoring.
0: Sorry to just jump in real quick. I reread it. I don't think she does any sex work When I was going back through, maybe more interestingly, she and Matthias never talk about what she did while there. And he assumes that she did sex work, but they never have a conversation before he dies.
2: It is implied very heavily that she does not do any sex work. And it really directly contrasts Inej and her time at the menagerie where she was forced to do sex work. And Nina has this kind of very privileged position because of her status as a Grisha. Although it is interesting, she does have a contract... That she is bound to perhaps like just a much Mm -hmm. more generous contract than Inej was given. I do think what you brought up earlier though about Matthias assuming that she did do sex work and then them never having a conversation is interesting, especially coming from Matthias who's very kind of, how do you say, conservative. (laughs) Like I do not (laughs) think that sex work would really fly in feared in society or at least respectable feared in society and for him to... Not appear to hold it against Nina, I think was probably like a real, showed some of his growth at least.
0: Yeah, it was definitely in a gay decision where it, her being a Grisha is what continued to weigh on him and give him pause, but not at all, you know, who she'd been with, her like sexual experience before him. He never really seems to dwell on that.
2: Yeah, maybe we should have brought this up in the Nina and Matthias episode. <laughs> all right. Back on track. So we learn that she is working at the White Rose and she's in Ketterdam because she's working to free Matthias. And we don't really know a lot of the backstory necessarily, but we know that she's trying to free him and she's joined forces with the dregs to do so. So when she finally, you know, they get a plan together, they rescue Matthias and she, you know, rushes to him and I think very optimistically kind of assumes that everything is going to be fine and he does not forgive her. In fact, he does the opposite of forgive her and attempts to strangle her. (laughs) So not really what she was hoping, but she also doesn't really try to or get the best chance to explain herself either. We get to see her display a lot of her spy skills. She's really great at acting. When she's at the White Rose, she takes on the character of this wise priestess. She pretends to be a dancing girl at the Ice Palace to break in. She'll eventually pretend to be like a fisherwoman to help the refugees leave Fierda in the second duology. And of course, she takes on the character of Mila Janderstadt, the blandest milk toast fisherman. <laughs> and her acting is so good, it even fools Jarl Broom. For real, this time. <laughs> Other than trying to uh, obviously free. Matthias. Her other motivation is trying to save the other Grisha in Ketterdam, and she'll come to blows with Kaz about this eventually until she gets her way. Their other major arc that she sort of goes through in these books is, of course, deals with Yerda Puram and her using it and eventually getting addicted to it. One of the main effects of her battle with Prem is that eventually her powers change. She is no longer a heart render. She becomes what the Feardins call the Bone Witch, which is quite a change. And I think we don't actually ever get to see anyone else in this series who survives our Jirapuram addiction. So it's really kind of fascinating to see how her power changed. The other kind of really cool spy skill we see, and I really enjoyed this, because it really shows how smart and competent Nina is. We get to see her skill at languages, and how she really is just so good immersing herself in various cultures, and totally passing for fluent. And I really like when characters are just really good at something, and display that in their actual actions, versus Mm -hmm. we're just being told about it.
1: Conspiracy theory. The real corporal key power is languages hmm. and being able to learn and inhabit them and hold your tongue and mouth in the right positions in order to not even have an accent.
2: My first reaction is why aren't the other corporal key like displaying language competency? But I do like a deranged conspiracy theory, and my mind immediately goes. To the Babblefish fish in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and it would be so cool to kind of think about if korboralki could have that modification where they're automatically able to like do something to their brain to translate incoming languages and translate their outgoing words.
1: What if she's like taking a soul? You know how like dead people speak to her after the parm mm-hmm. and she actually like Mila Yanderstadt was a real person this is a cover story and mm-hmm. what if she's finding that and pulling it into herself so it's like tailoring an extreme tailoring into someone else
0: Ooh, you're almost giving me the chills with this idea that she's basically yeah. stealing Mila's soul in <laughs> oh my gosh where do we start there's so many topics I think to get into why don't we talk a little bit about like what makes Nina tick and what drives her yeah let's do it I think
2: Nina is very people focused in a way. She is very loyal. She's very dutiful, but that that du- duty seems to be kind of directly tied to like figures, like in Ravka, whether it's like the Darkling or Zoya specifically. Like I think she has a lot of feelings about Zoya yeah. and not yeah. letting her down or the Ravkin army down. I think she's really driven by being for other Grisha, I think. She basically goes around for like an entire book, toting around Matthias's body until she can like bury him the honorable way. And I I think, you know, we don't necessarily see that with other characters in this series to that extent.
0: Yeah, she's such, in some ways, she's such a good little soldier, right? She like really believes in the cause of saving Grisha and recruiting them to Ravka.
1: I mean, She's she's a really good little soldier until she decides that whatever her commander says isn't the best thing that she should be doing. Um, And I guess this maybe gets to the dubious leadership and decisions of people in the Grishaverse. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, she cares so much about saving the Grisha. And I think we've talked about how, in a way, that makes her ending in the King of Scars duology very strange. But Mm -hmm. does she love anything more than... Grisha and Ravka, like waffles, cake, (laughs) an you know, but, but she really, her kind of moral compass is very clear, even when people really disagree with her methods. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's a great way of describing her, Anjali, is duty driven. It's interesting because I think she seems like such a fun, lighthearted, spontaneous, impulsive character that I don't think on the surface, most people would think of her as duty driven. But absolutely, she, everything she does besides eating sweets and looking for fun things to eat seems to kind of tie back to her mission or what she feels like she should be doing and ought to be doing.
1: Is her charm a coping mechanism? Like, is she covering something up with that? I feel like with Nikolai, yes, for sure.
2: Yeah. With Nina? You know, I don't think so because I think Nina is one of the characters who's the most comfortable with herself. She's very self-confident. She doesn't seem to have a lot of insecurities. That's part of what makes her such a, you know, interesting, brutal character. Like she's just so at peace with herself. I
0: agree. I think Nina is one of the most transparent characters and that's part of why it's hard to not love her. That said, in one of her backstories because she actually has two different backstories introduced in the throughout the series, one where she's a war orphan growing up in an orphanage before she's found. And even then, already the people who worked at the orphanage described her as charming and a super lovable child. And so maybe it was a coping mechanism from then where if, you know, you grow up in an orphanage and you're a child who, you know, wants to be nurtured and loved. You learn yeah, how to be lovable. Alina <laughs> it's like like Alina. Maybe a Abrasive. <laughs> so out of the three main orphans, we have Mal, Nina, and Alina. And Nina and Mal both become, like, super popular lovable characters. So I think maybe Alina but is also, just the but outlier. But
1: also, I later have a theory, like, tying Nina and Mal's powers together. So. What?
0: <laughs>
2: okay. Can't wait to hear that.
1: But I, I also think it's worth calling out that part of the reason I don't think her charm is covering anything up and part of the reason she feels so comfortable is because she is really the only fat character in these books. And I think that mm-hmm. was very deliberate on Libra Dugo's part to write her as just comfortable Mm -hmm. and happy with who she is. Imagine she was like Mm -hmm. Zoya and just constantly tortured and (laughs) never happy with herself, right? And you really saw it in Six of Crows. She's worked really hard on her representation. I think that... This was probably one of the things where she was trying to be really deliberate about Nina's overall comfort for the representation.
2: Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of self-hatred in fat characters that we see, especially in like TV and movies. So it's very
0: refreshing. Yeah. And okay, we talk about, I think one thing we talk about constantly is how much we love Nina and how she's definitely Anjali's and my favorite character. I don't know. Maybe JJ's is still the <laughs> darkling. Unclear. Maybe. But what makes her so lovable
1: Look, if someone was going to make me waffles, well, again, as we've talked about, I don't think Nina makes the waffles, but if I was going to have... They actually talk about how she can't cook. <laughs> if I was going to have waffles with someone. Be Nina.
2: You know, she's just so vibrant and, like, full of life. She's just a character that's really joyous to to read her point of view Her dialogue is excellent. I mean, nothing is going to be the banter between Zoya and Nikolai, but like Nina's (laughs) banter with everyone else comes very close. You know, even when she's worried about stuff or grumpy, like her point of view is so enjoyable to read. It's not tortured, it's not, you know, full of thinking you don't really understand. I think she's like very relatable, and yeah, I think that sense of contentment and self-confidence is very palpable through her point of view and i I think that's so relatable and it well it's not relatable for me it's more like goals for me if that makes sense
0: (sighs) i love how she's just like a burst of sunshine almost every scene she's in with some exceptions in king of scars i guess but generally i think that So many of the characters, like you were saying before, are constantly wallowing in self-pity and like basically like flagellating themselves for mistakes they've made. She makes mistakes, but she owns them and she moves on for the most part. She doesn't dwell on them too much. I love, I like love how much she loves food (laughs) and talks, like not even just sweets but in general and how when she finally is starting to recover from withdrawal, the first thing she really notices is that she's hungry. There's just so many times where I think I really appreciated that. And I think generally, I also like that, I feel like transparent sounds like a bad thing in some ways, but I think she feels like the kind of friend where you always know where you stand with her. Like when she's annoyed with you, you know, and she's not like conflict avoidant the way that other characters that I think we all like to some degree, like Nikolai do. And then when she's like upset or she's mad, She She says it.
1: Although, I mean, she doesn't avoid conflict, but also her whole disagreement with Matthias could have been resolved with an actual five-minute conversation that she didn't (laughs) bother having, and instead this dragged on for, like, weeks. (laughs) And I get narrative tension, whatever. And I do want to call out because while Nina may not be my favorite, I really enjoy her a lot. And that is why I was so sad about those first few chapters in King of Scars where she was just sad mm. the whole time. And I'm like, Nina, yeah. like I'm counting <laughs> on you here. And we had a lot more IRL time to grieve Matthias in between Crooked Kingdom and King of Scars that yep. Nina had in the books.
0: One of the other things I wanted to address from our last episode about Nina, the Hellnik one, is that we spent some time talking about how much Matthias changed and developed as a character, but how it felt like Nina didn't really. On a subsequent reread, I realized that she actually really starts to experience a sense of shame. Specifically, I think it happens after she takes the Jerta perem, her actions during her like darkest moments of withdrawal. But then she also has shame in her new power. Like she especially I think it happens when she calls the corpses up to come and help her in a But even when they go to Little Bravka, there's a point where she's looking at the people there dressed in their traditional outfits and she thinks of it as old fashioned and a little backwards. And it made her feel a little ashamed. And I feel like this is a new side to Nina that we didn't see at all in the first book, the Six of Crows book. Do you think it's that she's
2: developed more of a tendency to shame or that the actions and things that she's gone through have been drastic enough to make even her feel shamed?
0: I almost feel like it's just that she like learned how to feel shame, if you know what I mean? Where before that, she was just like this carefree summer child in a sense. And then afterwards, when she has this like, you know, terrible withdrawal experience and addiction, suddenly it starts to like, this sense of shame starts to come out in other places too. And it's a little bit of maybe her growing up in a sense. And it's kind of, I think, interesting and surprising because most of the times when we think about character development, we think of it as a positive thing. Like, Matthias becomes open-minded. He accepts that women don't just stay home, you know, and cook and don't think about fighting or whatever. Or, you know, Kaz and Inej, like, grow together so that they can, you know, presumably be in a have their own version of their happy ending. But Nina's to develop shame, I think, isn't what you would traditionally think of as, like, a happy character growth. Yeah, do we think it's because of Matthias's
2: relationship? and absorbing some of the intense shame that he seems to be feeling at all times.
1: The character development there seems a lot more similar to me to the Zoya and Nikolai arcs where at the end of the first trilogy, they're much more broken and they like have these shameful secrets or, you know, secrets that they feel shame over.
0: You know what that makes me think is that this is like Lee Bardugo's way of signaling that that character is going to be a major character in the next installment mm. it's like whenever there's someone who is broken or doesn't end like in a particularly good place it's her like wink wink nudge nudge there's going to be a new duology where zoya nikolai nina are going to be the three saying now. is the next duology will focus on the dark link <laughs> <Back.
1: laughs> yes Swanbreaker. Family reunion. I'm I will manifest a
2: book about Swanbreaker into existence. She has to do it. I Angela, need to know the backstory.
0: <laughs> you can write one. Should we talk a little bit
1: about Nina's relationships with other key characters too? Let's yeah. do it. Let's talk about Nina and Annette. Because everyone loves that friendship.
0: It's just so pure and lovely in such a terrible, messed up universe. And you get to see it develop too. I think that's part of the the joy that I take in their friendship is a lot of times characters are already friends with each other and have these like sweet moments or reaffirming moments. I feel like we really got to see Inej and Nina's friendship grow over time. And it, you know, becomes such a close friendship that it gets to the point where Inej is the one who helps her convince Kaz to save the other Grisha in Ketterdam. Inej is there when Nina is really upset about her new power and feeling like it's a mistake. And then Nina is getting through her addiction and withdrawal. It's really her focusing on rescuing Inej and then her joy of Inej being back that kind of gets her through those like bleakest, darkest moments of addiction and withdrawal. Also... It's Inez who's there when Matthias yeah. dies. It's She's the only other one there. And she's the one who persuades Nina to let him go because Nina's sort of like creepily resurrecting him with her newfound power. And Inez is the one who's like, no, you need to let go now.
1: Yeah. That's an incredible summary. Yeah, I think it, it's just... One of those things that is so beautiful. I mean, I guess it's because everything else is going very poorly, but their relationship does quite well.
0: Yeah, I think it was one thing I really enjoyed about this. And here's my like spicy take of the episode. I wasn't super convinced by Alina and Jenya's friendship. This one I was. This one I feel like by the end of it, I was like, these two have really been through everything together and have each other's backs. So... Another Crow that I think she has a really interesting
1: relationship with,
0: slash there's surprising elements to, is her relationship with Jesper.
1: Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> funny because they're both super charming. Jesper is charming in the books, too. Mm-hmm. He is. He is charming yep, in the books. super
0: charming. Um, I mean, Wyland and Kuwait are, like, dying yeah. over him.
1: Everyone's – well, I was going to say everyone's dying over him, but clearly not. It's just them – because yeah, it's not he, Kaz. <laughs> it's not Kaz. He and Nina, as Kat, you pointed out, they really don't flirt with each other
2: yeah these two natural born flirts don't flirt with each other
1: i wonder if they flirted together if would escalate too quickly um (laughs) yeah they're like wait we're married now (laughs) (laughs) wait we didn't really want that did we i was trying i thought you'd yeah i would call your bluff but yeah so that flirting with the more staid characters allows them to do so safely
0: i think so but I do think there is definitely an opportunity for some fun dialogue if they had had more opportunities to both completely like let it rip. Yeah, I'm interested
2: um, in the show if we'll get to see some Jesper-Nina interactions and what they'll be like. I think it should mm. be really fun.
0: There's also a really nice scene between them, or I, I at least I thought it was nice. It's when Nina's really struggling with her power. It's before she really understands how it's changed. She's trying to use it. She's with Jesper. They're supposed to take out these guards, and she's just supposed to make them pass out without killing them. And she can't. He's like, cool, no problem. He accepts that she's struggling. He doesn't, like, you know, give her grief about it the way I think many of the others would. And he kind of keeps her secret. Obviously, when Matthias starts close questioning him about what went wrong, he kind of says, hey, she's not quite herself. But he lets it be her secret to tell her information to tell Matthias rather than outing her.
1: Yeah. We know that he, of all the characters in here, I think, understands what it is to have your powers be like a closely kept secret. Yeah, that's that's a great point.
0: And the other kind of touch point or interaction that I wanted to call out between Nina and Jesper is, especially in the first book, a lot of their interaction revolves around them semi-debating whether or not Grisha are actually better off in Ravka. And a lot of this is also before Nina knows that he's a fabricator. But what I thought was interesting about this is that it was a good chance for someone to push her on some of the ideology that she'd never really questioned before. Does it meaningfully change her opinion at that point? I don't know, but I think it is at least a good starting point for her to start to question some of what she grew up with and what she was taught.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. You know, Jesper, his freedom is incredibly important to him, and I cannot see him being a dutiful rap consultant <laughs> no matter what. I think introducing <laughs> his like wildly different point of view is a good checkup for Nina.
1: Talking about this, we've talked about some of the other things like Kaz's hephophobia and everything on this podcast before. I don't think any of us wants to share any personal experience with addiction, so we won't comment deeply on that, as opposed to bringing up a few of the ways that it is discussed and what that felt like as a reader for us.
0: I think there's an interesting thing that we often hear throughout this series and that Kuei kind of succinctly summarizes again, which is basically if Grisha don't use their powers, they grow ill. They age, tire easily, lose their appetite. And what struck me about this is that there's actually a fair amount of overlap with withdrawal symptoms. Obviously, it's a subset of the many, many symptoms you can experience going through withdrawal. But I did wonder how much of Nina's illness and sickness and suffering was caused by withdrawal from Jirapuram versus her not using her power for months, maybe at least weeks
1: at that point. That's super interesting, especially in the way where we tend to homeland conspiracy style pinboard, tie all of these things together. And, you know, especially (laughs) given her new powers, we know she wasn't really using her old powers. And then it's left to what if she was using her new powers? And how would she have known? And what would that look like? But yeah, I think it's certainly an interesting data point for what might be happening and how we'd want to take that into account, right? If we've talked about in between book one and two, how Bagra gets super, super old and we don't Mm -hmm. see the same thing happening for Nina, sort of what what that means. The aging.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a fair point. I think it does seem a lot more extreme also than Alina's, you know, ailments throughout the first book before she starts using her summoning powers, but the fact that she suddenly feels so much better each time she starts using her new power made it like a little bit more tied to using her Grisha power versus not than I think it would have otherwise been for me.
2: I think that's so interesting, especially in light of what we see in the second duology where we do see other... Grisha, who are being dosed with Jirdapuram, and they're addicted to it. You know, all those women in the army hospital. And I, I wonder if it was true that, you know, their powers actually changed, and, like, an alternate solution to their problems would be not ingesting more Jirda, but actually like using their changed powers if that could have helped them. That's like kind of a really interesting possibility or like a, a different way Nina could have tackled what was happening.
0: Totally. And that's also something I think we should absolutely discuss more, whether in this episode or a future one. There's so much interesting stuff going on in that arc. I will put a pin in that though, but I love that you brought that up. One last thing on it, the her experience dealing with addiction withdrawal. She has this quote where she says, Zoya used to say fear is a phoenix. You can watch it burn a thousand times and still it will return. The need for Param felt that way too. And I felt like that was like a really evocative, like just moving way of talking about, you know, overcoming addiction and how it's not just like a light switch moment, that it is a constant everyday choice that you make, even though in the Grishaverse series, it does feel like she moves on from her addiction and by you know, King of Scars and Rule of Wolves, there's much, much less conversation around it. I thought that that quote was a really good way of encapsulating addiction, withdrawal, and the cycle of kind of trying to break free from it, but that it is a conscious, constant decision. Yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful quote. Oh, uh, this is a random, like, one, but maybe you'll enjoy this, JJ, and maybe this will take too long. (laughs) I think um, our podcast group, specifically really enjoys this kind of stuff, so I'm gonna throw it out there. Question, why doesn't heart rending seem to work on animals? (laughs)
2: <laughs> yes, so it's mentioned in the second book of this duology, and it's like a very interesting tidbit that's dropped that kind of rocked my understanding of like what heart renders do.
1: So one, one of the things I think is really interesting is that corporeal powers are broadly described, and a lot of the instances we see are physiological changes. That's what heart renders use to kill people. And then we have this line saying it doesn't work on animals, but they probably do kill other things directly or indirectly. Has a healer never cured an infection? I'm sure they have. And Mm. it's that, are they not manipulating the bacteria directly? They're just helping the immune system do it. And thus it's kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. taking that physiology to work on the infection, but What we see Nina do is she's changing people's moods, she's killing lots of people, she's making them go to sleep. Under Jurda Param, she's doing tailoring without taking Mm the color. And then what we see after her addiction is that in order to kill people, there are a few ways she does it. And one of them is that she strengthens the death already within them. So one of them has a tumor, I think it was. And she just kind of like has a super growing metastasize and just take over the entire body really quickly. So that's a death inside a body, and it is part of the body, right? That's part of why why some of these things are so difficult to deal with. She yeah. also uses flying shards of mm-hmm. bone, and she talks to dead people. But one of the things I think is interesting is as her skills switch from manipulating human life to manipulating human Is that she's not better at killing. She just uses a different way to do it. And so it's Mm -hmm. like a lot of her powers have this same root, but one of them is manipulating life and one is manipulating death. But it's very specifically human in both cases. Does that make any sense?
2: No, it does, because in the second duology, right, she feels like the dead bones, right, of all the women who've been buried near her. Presumably, if she could, you know... Manipulate dead animal parts, she would be feeling tons because there's got to be tons and tons of animals that have died nearby, but it's very specifically humans that are
1: dead. And, you know, I was thinking about this in terms of, you know, if we think of life and death as something inherent in the heart of the world and then it is expressed physiologically, then it makes a little bit more sense as to how she's able to kind of do these two sets of things and then we can tie mal's powers in really went full conspiracy theory here because mal really senses animal life specifically we see him with animal life there is no evidence that he tracks plants for instance even though that would be a really Mm. useful skill he only hunts he doesn't like forage even though there are tons of edible plants and that's not just like the vegetarian in me talking but really like there's a lot of stuff you can eat that doesn't involve shooting arrows at rabbits he can't necessarily manipulate any of that although he hasn't really tried or been trained but it is interesting that also what he does with his skill set is similar to Nina he also just uses it to kill mm. he uses it to find animals and kill them and it's interesting there's a lot of destruction at the heart of what they do and Nina does it for humans and Mal does it for animals. I will acknowledge that he does track Elena at one point and she kills him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but that's the only time we ever see him tracking a human as opposed to other animal types. I
0: enjoy this way of wrapping up all the different theories of how kind of the like magic system quote unquote works in this universe because The other, without doing that, the alternative to me is that it's just incredibly dissatisfying that even though Nina's power is supposed to be connected to the making of the world, there's somehow some key differentiation between humans and other creatures that renders her powers unusable on anyone besides humans and also makes me kind of feel like, okay, maybe this is also just a limitation in terms of what the Grisha believe that they can do as key and if they were more open-minded like the Zemeni Grisha or
1: Zoa, they would be able to also use their powers on animals. It does feel very religious in that sense of the clear dividing line between humans and everyone else.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's just satisfying to me as like someone who looks at the universe of like, you know, is there... that make a difference between me and a gorilla, you know, let alone an octopus, let alone a pig, you know, like these like other highly intelligent social creatures, a whale, like what's the difference between me and a whale? They swim better and seem more intelligent and peaceful, I guess. But... They're a lot bigger than you. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's that. Are you two ready for some lightning round questions? Uh, Are we ever ready?
1: I came up with a new idea for a couple lightning round things that we're going to try this time. And the first one I came up with because I don't have to do anything. And I think it's a great idea because I am so curious. As we mentioned in a previous episode, Anjali is a pastry chef and she has in the group chat we discussed some trauma that she has had related to making wedding cakes for 200 plus person weddings when her friends get married and so we thought that rather than making her actually execute on these wedding cakes what we could do is ask her to verbally design a wedding cake at the end of each episode so anjali what would Nina and Matthias have at their wedding?
2: All right. My first instinct is that Nina and Matthias would have, you know, one of those kind of 80s style wedding cakes where there are different layers on different tiers. One tier would be a giant waffle cake. One tier would be all cheese. You know, big wheel of kind of cheese that's decorated and carved. And then there's one really luscious chocolate cake. These very kind of mm. three different indulgent options. I think that's what Nina would choose. And I think she would not necessarily care about what Matthias... We'll, we'll put some like a smoked fish on the table too from the feared and half of the guests.
0: <laughs> Can I request sure, an addition yes. to this? can there be rum-soaked raisins on fire? Sure. I love their interactions around when she was trying to explain to him, like, a Rodkin cake or dessert that had rum-soaked raisins lit on fire. And towards the end, when he's worried about her, he's like, "We'll go to Rodka, we'll, like, you know, light raisins on fire or whatever <laughs> you do that's super fun. <laughs>
1: uh, oh, that's a beautiful cake. I'm so happy we've added this segment into all of our <laughs> podcasts from here on out. Oh, great. I'm (laughs) sorry. One other lightning round that we will try out, because this is something we talk about a lot between us, is a really quick pitch for other books that we're reading that we think Grishaverse fans might enjoy. I will kick us off... I have absolutely adored Rebecca Horse's newest series, Black Sun, is the first book. Fevered Star came out pretty recently. It's adult fantasy instead of YA. I love the world building. For fans of the Grishaverse, it has a sun priest, it has a crow god, and there is lots of body horror. So I think there could be some pretty good (laughs) fandom overlap there. Yeah. Crossover.
0: I think... The one that I can imagine other people who like the Grishaverse enjoying is a new series, it's YA fantasy, called. the first book is called A Magic Steeped in Poison, and it's set in Imperial China, where a young woman is competing to basically become the court's tea guru, if you will, and there's magic involved where when you brew tea, you can you know compel people to, to be honest or you know have these other sort of skills and it's not a fully developed magic system at least not yet but the second book is out i think later this summer so if you're looking for other way fantasy with ambiguous semi-vague magic systems this is a good one to check out
2: i am currently reading not a particularly new series in fact a very old series but i'm reading robin hobbs realm of the elderlings series hey. which Kat really heavily influenced me to read i'll be honest without her and some of my other friends persuasion i would have never picked it up because the first trilogy the first book is called assassin's apprentice which to me sounds like a very like male oriented but kind of like violent spy book which is like not really my jam most of the time but it's an incredible fantasy series and I will say Mm -hmm. what I love about it is that its magic system is so interesting and so well thought out and has like this really interesting like background that you discover slowly in like a very satisfying way over many books. The first two were a little bit of a slog for me to get through because there's some really infuriating things that happen, but oh my god, the second... He makes so The reasons. main character just <laughs> makes the worst choices all the time, and you're just constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop for the consequences of those actions.
0: JJ knows how I feel about imperfect protagonists. Yeah, <laughs> I would
2: say good. Fitz is very imperfect, but the third book was excellent, and I will have to say the second trilogy in this series is amazing. The third trilogy also really good. I just finished the quartet that's after that. Pretty great. Yeah, there are a lot of books in this series. <laughs> you can tell I still have three more to get through but it's a really satisfying great series. I think people that enjoy kind of the magic world and the Grishaverse would enjoy the realm of the Elderlings quite a bit.
0: And the dubious connection I have for you is that there's also a wolf familiar <laughs> in the some of it's those Very books. true. <laughs> All right, Kiss Mary Kill time. Who's ready? Neither I'm, of you look ready. I was but... born ready. <laughs> Good answer. Your options for Kiss Mary Kill today are Jesper, Matthias, and Hannah.
2: Hmm, that's pretty tough, Kat. Um, I will go first. There's no Jarl <laughs> Broom in there today
0: for you, so no easy <laughs> outs.
2: I think I would kiss Jesper because he seems really fun and I think it would be quite the experience. I don't know if Jesper is long-term the kind of stability I need in a relationship. I think I would... This is going to be very painful for me to say, but I will kill Matthias because I really enjoy Ooh. Matthias, but like, you know, he comes with a lot of baggage and Nina was able to <laughs> charm her way, you know, under all of his walls and get him to open up and shed some of his ideas. I am no Nina. That's a lot of work and I'm not willing to put it in. He's got to go. Hanna seems like a pretty stable, loving partner who's pretty passionate i think they'd be a good companion
0: i also think that there might not be a of emerald but there must be some comparable jewelry and gemery involved mm. in being a fyrden uh, queen. that's an interesting
2: point while i think the fyrden crown jewels are probably more boring than the rock crown jewels because Fjorda is a bunch of stick <laughs> in the mud
1: they've got to have some and i will take them you know what I'm, I'm gonna agree with you. I think Jesper, the kind of person you want to kiss, but not necessarily, you know, keep around long term. It seems he has other things maybe going on. And certainly I feel like he and Weiland are, are the match there. You know, I think we say goodbye to Matthias because we have some practice saying goodbye to Matthias and (laughs) cat's face right uh, now yeah cat is not happy with this but you your turn is coming and then you know we use all of these pretty liberally but i think i can marry hannah and then give him a lot of freedom to live his life i think there are a lot of unanswered questions about hannah and i think like what his name is i I mean just (laughs) So there's so much and we learn just how much he's hidden from Nina in the series who, you know, I have to imagine Hannah did not really believe Nina would have any problems with any of this. I mean, even how good he was with tailoring, Nina did not really know we'd get these like tiny glimpses. But I think there's a lot to be worked out there. And I don't think it has to be in a strict relationship with me, but I would provide the space.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think mine is a no-surprises-marrying-Matthias. Now, when it comes to Jesper and Hannah, I think I'm actually going to kiss Hannah presumably Hana will have his own bedroom now, so I don't have to worry about the mom walking in anymore like (laughs) Nina did. And Jesper, I think, just has too much going on with the Wiling Kue triangle. I still choose to believe there is a triangle there, even though it is definitively, canonically (laughs) not a triangle. (laughs) I choose to believe. And I don't, yeah, I don't see it happening. I think it is a, as much as I actually really like Jesper as a character, both in the series and in the Netflix show, I think he's getting axed today. I know. I'm as surprised as you two are. And we are
1: surprised.
2: (laughs) I am more disappointed. (laughs) That's all for this episode. Feel free to drop us a line with any feedback, thoughts, ideas you have at crowclubpod at gmail.com.